Welcome to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the Chicos, Eddie Matthews. And, That's me. And in addition, we have a special guest today, my sister, the one and only Demi Wack. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> so we're having, I think it's, we're taking advantage of being quarantined with family because we could have done this a while back, but we're actually, I'm lucky we didn't because we would have not had a guest on in a while. So we have her here in person. At least Eddie's far away, but I'm here with my sister. <laughs> and uh, we're going to pick, pick her brain a little bit about effective altruism, the 80,000 hours movement. I mean, if you don't know what those things are, just wait. We're about to get into it. Can we come up with like a catchier title for your movement, Demi? Effective altruism is a bit of a mouthful. Um, yeah, I, I am. This is my own movement now. <laughs> no, um, it, it's interesting though, because it, like, we'll get into it, but the way it started was like mainly philanthropies off the bat that it talks about. So I think the name suits, but now that it, it's kind of moved on to being like this broader philosophical movement, um, we can change it. What, what, what's, what, what's your pitch? What's the name? What's the new name? Yeah, yeah. Um, Demi, Demi Wack Experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing that. That's, that's, more, that's more like communicable. I just feel like effective altruism. I just, this is the problem I have with Sam Harris's like kind of uh, worldview is that you basically have to be an intellectual to like <laughs> kind of uh, ascribe to it. Yeah. And it's just like, all right, well, what if you're not <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I think, yeah, I think it could go for a name change. I think the Demi Ultimate Experience is not bad. Yeah. We'll workshop it. Much better. Uh, it's very data-driven, though, so we'll have to workshop <laughs> it. We'll run it, run it through and see if we can recruit some new members, and if not. The, the only problem with that is that effective altruism, at least, like, there's no way you can mispronounce it. People might think it's Demi, uh, the Demi... You know, we might get a lot of people from like the Demi Moore fan club that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah. Right. That's not bad. That's bad. true. But actually, yeah, it's Demi Lovato, Demi Moore experience, and mm. Demi. And as long mm. as that led to a better outcome, the movement would be fine with it. Mm -hmm. So that's actually that's all right. Right. Okay. I'm down. <laughs> all right. So here's I liked Demi sent us a couple things. Demi studied a lot harder than we did for this. But I like mm. to think I, I know the basics. And so she's going to run the show today. And I think this is interesting for people that don't have kind of a, or at least have a cursory understanding of the movement. And maybe they know a little bit about utilitarianism, but they don't necessarily know about the organizations working within this space to promote the most effective use of resources and those sorts of things. So Demi is going to talk to us about that today. This is just the opening paragraph of something Demi sent me. I thought this was the best, most concise overview of what effective altruism is. And it's just... It sounds obvious that if you can help two people rather than one, the cost to you is the same. It's better to help the two people. However, when applied to the world, this obvious sounding idea leads to surprising conclusions. And that's basically, I think, what effective altruism is. It's utilitarianism on the large. Um, and they argue with that. They say it's not really utilitarian. And I think Demi maybe get into that a little bit. But in, in my view, it roughly more or less is. And I don't think, see there are many problems with that. I think there are issues here and there and there are nitpicks and there are ways to improve and disapprove 
But as far as kind of large scale movements go, I'm, I'm more um, supportive of this one than a lot of others. Does that give a good primer? Yeah, yeah, okay. I think that's good. Um, I guess it's important to say that I, like, I'm definitely not like an expert in this. Uh, I think I was first introduced to this idea when I like when quarantine started and Morgan uh, made me listen to like kind of like the major book that's about this by like one of its co-founders, which is, I need to pronounce it now because I'm going to forget it later. William McCaskill? I think it's McCaskill. Oh, yeah, I thought yeah. you spelled it wrong. That's a, <laughs> he's Scottish, so you're moving to the UK soon. Oh, okay, you got to okay. get these Scottish things um, down. That's why it's not called the William McCaskill experience. <laughs> they called it the old last experience, but it didn't catch on. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he, he wrote this book called Doing Good Better. And um, it kind of outlines effective altruism and then some of its principles and then talks about kind of like the recommendations if you like subscribe to effective altruism. Um, but over, I think it's important to mention like over the criticisms that it's received, there's been like a lot of adjustments to like the definition. So even in the article that I sent, which is like the most recent one I could find, it says like, you know, this is like a tentative definition. Like we're still trying to work it out. Um, so most basically they, William, I'm just gonna go with first names. William, that's good. <laughs> William, oh, Willie. Oh, Willie describes this as a, a growing global community of people who use reason and evidence to assess how, how to do as much good as possible and who takes action on that basis. Um, so initially, it sounds like, it seems like William and Peter, <laughs> Peter Singer, who's another, another <laughs> philosopher, um, they were looking at donations and philanthropy specifically and how a lot of the times, when people are donating, they kind of just think that they kind of go in blindly with it, like, oh, I'm, I'm doing good. Um, so therefore, this is going to make a huge difference. But they take a more critical approach to that and saying, you know, you could actually be doing good a lot better. Um, and they get really, really specifically into that. Um, like one of the most like popular examples would probably be uh, like a play, the play pump example, um, which is this thing that was like, really widely accepted and funded as being like a fun way for people in, uh, I don't know what country it was in. There's a lot of places yeah. in Sub-Saharan Africa, I think. And basically what would happen is instead of like using a normal pump to pump water, they installed these things called play pumps, which were little like- Merry-go-rounds. Merry-go-rounds, yeah. yeah, that like children go on and it would, it was a win-win situation because the children could like run, play on these things and it would pump water and provide water, fresh water to the whole village. But what ultimately happened, it was, it was like super ineffective. It was way more expensive. The children didn't really want to do it. Um, they have like stories of like the older women in the village having to like take over and like passing out from like trying to use this play pump. Um, and so despite getting like initial recognition by like, I think the Clintons endorsed it um, and everything else, it like later kind of got like retracted because there just wasn't good evidence for it. Um, and like since then, this movement as long as uh, along with others have gotten like a lot more support of being like okay we need to be more evidence-based in our approaches and not just like look some put something out there that looks sexy like the play pump but focus on other <laughs> merry-go-rounds are so sexy these days <laughs> <laughs> and instead do something like um like malaria medication way or, sexier <laughs> or or malaria is so like, much sexier and stuff like that yeah yeah so so that's kind of like the essence of it um and I could get into like the principles of it if you would yeah. like me to. I have a quick question really quickly. Yeah. So on the scale of like, let's see, a scale of like public schooling to like Charles Manson, 
like how culty is effective altruism because the name yeah, mixed yeah. with a lot of the like kind of intergroup jargon that they bring about what would you say is the level of cultiness uh, yeah i would say it's like remember that children of the corn yeah <laughs> i don't know if i can rate it on that scale but like i can agree with you that the more that I've like looked into this, the more I'm kind of like, I don't really understand why this is like an individual thing. It seems like it should be more targeted at groups who do philanthropy, not necessarily mm -hmm. like individuals who are looking to give. And I think it goes into Eddie's thing of being like, this kind of seems like an elitist little, little, I don't know. But, yeah. but isn't, isn't the point of targeting individuals so that you can get people with like a really high aptitude in at the start of their career or maybe like mid-career and then convince them to make a lot of money so that they can donate a lot of money so that's like one aspect of it um that would be like what is that earning to give earning to give is like one thing that they do promote um and i feel like when you get to when you actually look at their recommendations because like on the outside like being like we should have more research you know giving like we should be doing good better like that sounds pretty good like there are some issues with that but when you go into like the actual application of like oh, you know, we should earn to give, or we should be donating 10% of our money, which is like another thing they support, or these are specific fields that you should be going into if you're like a young adult starting their career. Um, I think there are like a lot of, a lot of criticisms that do come up. Um, and we can definitely get into those. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should talk about the positives first, because the okay. reason I think we find it so interesting is because they're, it, especially in the realm of NGOs and nonprofits, it quite clearly like picked at an issue that needed to be solved. Like there was, I think the one stat that sticks out to me is they, they asked a bunch of people, what do you think the difference is? It's kind of a bimodal distribution between the most effective NGOs and just the average NGO. And people guessed that the most effective NGOs were 66% more efficient. And the actual answer was 10,000% more efficient. So giving $1 to a, a, just not even a bad NGO, but just a regular nonprofit is 10,000 times less efficient or percent less efficient than giving it to the more effective NGOs. And so I think that's, it's quite clearly getting at something that is a major problem. Um, and yeah, I, I, so I think that there are a lot of good to come of this, um, but there are also, you know, obviously critiques, but it does start from a place where there was an obvious issue to be solved and they have addressed that in some way, at least brought it to life. Yeah, and I agree. And, and like another stat too, that's kind of like come forth was, I, I forget exactly, but they looked at like social programs in general, which isn't necessarily just philanthropy, social programs. And they said that like, three out of four social programs in the U.S. were either ineffective or like actually had negative impacts on what they were trying to fix. And so there's a clear, like it, it's a really like important, it's a really, it's really important focus area. And like, I'm really happy that there are people working on it. And I think their values are really good, great. Yeah. yeah. What do you think though, the main reason that these things existed in the first place? Because I think the, the main thing that stood out to me from the article set was this issue of cause neutrality. It seems like a lot of people that donate to charities and organizations pick issues that are close to them. You know, you always hear about celebrities it's like, oh, she struggled with anxiety and now she runs an anxiety based, you know, uh, acapella troupe. Or he. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. They run uh, an acapella group for anxious youth or something like that. It's like, that's great. They have an interest in that. But quite clearly, that's probably not the best use of resources. And that's kind of what they get at. It's this idea that you really need to take emotion out of it. And maybe, I know deworming is one of their big initiatives. Really not that sexy. It doesn't sound that great. We're like, oh, I spent half my salary this month donating to deworming programs. It sounds you'll probably get more cred and more pats on the back if you help out, you know, 
youth or some other issue. And I think that is where they add a lot of value. Um, it's trying to decouple people's personal opinions and emotions from kind of the greater good. Well, so what, what are the criteria for them to choose like a cause or how do they rank all the causes that are competing for their money? And who, and who does the ranking? So like, Dimitri, to talk about this a little bit more, I think the, the one, another positive I would say is that they don't publish like manifestos where it's like here, they, they do allow for kind of aggregation and ranking. So they'll be like, all right, we need to somehow justify, you know, they say if 200 people are going to lose their legs or one person dies, how do we determine which one should be helped? You know, those sorts of things. We need some sort of way of quantifying. We can't just say, oh, it's intangible because that defeats the point of the program. Um, but they do much better at kind of reevaluating re mistakes or reevaluating when new evidence comes to light. Um, and they kind of, because they bring in a lot of stuff about animal rights. They're like, okay, what's the, you know, suffering of one person versus three cows? Like, how do we quantify this? And they try really hard to actually get at that. And new evidence comes to light that, you know, cows are more sensitive to certain things than they had known before. They reevaluate where the dollar should go. And so that sort of thing I think is really annoying <laughs> to a lot of people who are just like, tell me what to do. Last month I donated to the cows, now I'm donating to the person. But I also agree that, you know, they're sticking to the principles a lot and they're not getting kind of dogmatic about what is the best issue or what's the most pertinent issue. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with that. And before I move on to talking about like how they quantify that, I think it's really important to mention too, something that I really appreciate about the founders of this movement and the people who seem to subscribe to it is that they're really open to changing their methods. And they're very careful about making individual recommendations, to individual people. And when they do make broad uh, recommendations, it seems like they're taking in all the information that they do have and inviting criticism. So I think, I think that's really, really great. Um, and yeah, when it comes to how they actually calculate what is like good, they'll, they'll do this thing where they incorporate uh, like expected values of welfare. And so that happens where they take all the good and like all the bad that could happen in a certain situation and then also include the probability that will happen. So this is kind of important when looking at like big existential threats, like, um, you know, calculating like the death of like two people uh, because you didn't get them the malaria medication or calculating the death of um, a pandemic or like, Nuclear oh, no, 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 yeah. yeah. And so they do like take that into account too, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and then they also take in like counter counterfactuality, um, which would be like, what would happen if there was no intervention in, intervention at all? Um, and I think that's really important when looking at donations, um, but also really important when we're going to talk about like the 80,000 hours thing we'll touch mm -hmm. on later, which is like career recommendation, um, which says like, yeah, basically, so, so say that someone's like uh, needs <clears throat> like CPR and you step in because you like did CPR in like fifth grade and kind of remember it. Um, and you actually like you save that person, but you help them, you end up giving them like long term lung damage when really there was someone else right next to you who was like a doctor and could totally have done that. That would be like a negative counterfactuality where you actually like cause more harm by stepping in when you shouldn't have done it, um, which we kind of see with like the play pump example, where if they hadn't like replaced some of the previous water pumps with the play pumps, it likely would have been had better outcomes. Um, so they do take all of that into consideration. And then those are all, so when they do make those broad recommendations, which I see, I do see them like kind of shying away from in some ways, um, there's this website called GiveWell, which they seem to highly endorse. And I'm not sure if they're, the founders are like actually part of GiveWell. I think they are. If they did that as well. Um, but GiveWell basically has, I think it's 
a list of like the top charities that you can donate to because they've shown to have like super high impact. So like the deworming one was an example. And in order to like prove the deworming one's viability, they basically compared it to the other charities that were working on the same stuff. So the deworming one is specifically shown to increase like school attendance. Um, and they've, they did that by comparing the ones that were already out there. Like they did it against textbooks, like providing textbooks, like free textbooks to all the students. Um, and compared to the tech or the textbooks almost did like, I don't think, I don't, in the example they gave, I don't think they did like anything mm -hmm. for school attendance. We're actually deworming the kids, like way over increased the attendance of the school, like the likelihood of attending school for, for kids. Yeah. So how did, how, do they, <laughs> how do they bypass uh, like local government corruption? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the major issues is that you can only, the way they do that is by recognizing individual organizations, not, they wouldn't say you should give to anyone who's doing deworming, right? Any country, any context. They would say in Kenya, this specific organization is working with these schools and it's been very effective. So by basically taking out the contextual, inner contextuality, that's how they do it, right? They're not saying, oh, we should be funding deworming over textbooks. They're saying you should fund the deworm organization in Kenya over the textbook organization in Mali, you know? So that's kind of how they do it. They basically look at it specific. And if something changed, if Kenya became more corrupt and suddenly the organization was less effective, they would kind of revise. I'm not sure how often they do a kind of revisions on the NGOs, but I think it's fairly often. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So I don't, Eddie, what do you think so far? So this is, we basically give the, we've given the positives. And we have a story about Demi, who basically interviewed with one of the groups who promotes this, this type of activity, one of the cults. She was uh, taken into one of these cult sororities and uh, <laughs> given an indoctrination. So we can hear about that next. Or did you want to ask a little bit more about what the basics are of, of this movement? Um, I hope they didn't give you any funny cigarettes to smoke during the interview. <laughs> she had those with her to begin with. That's the Kool-Aid. It's an interesting idea and I like the, I, I guess it's like hard to argue with the kind of methodology, at least that I've seen so far, but you always kind of have to question like the leadership at organizations like this, like I guess how it's structured and who gets to, I, how, how the agenda gets set. I guess is always kind of like a tricky thing with when it comes to money, when it comes to causes, because say they're like, all right, new research has come to light. Saving these 200 cows is better than saving these five children. But what if you're of the opinion that like saving five children is better than saving 200 cows? But then they would say opinions don't matter, Eddie. This is effective <laughs> altruism. <laughs> right. But it's like what, I guess it's hard. It would be really hard to, to quantify values, right? Like, and I guess that's the whole kind of point of them where it's like, well, you know, they've probably saved a lot of human life because they've been very, um, what I would say, like quantitative rather than qualitative. But there is a qualitative aspect to human life, right? <laughs> so how do you, I guess, quantify something that's qualitative? in in essence so do you mean because like going through this like i because it was so obvious to me the like positive impacts of it i focused a lot on 
like some of the criticisms that I pulled from it. And one of the major, like, one of the major things that I found a problem with was how when they're focusing on like these bigger charities, say like, for example, with just the give well approach, because they're focusing on this bigger charities, they're pulling away from like small local charities or small movements or or startups even that yeah. could go on to be very effective but if you're only funding things that are effective now you know that's that's a problem as well right and a lot of these like smaller ones um like the acapella group for <laughs> for the person you're talking about earlier or like just you know just the other day like i donated like 20 dollars to like farm workers just because i was like oh yeah like i you know this seems like something that i really want to do right now that is not yeah the oh by, by the way i i donated 20 bucks to farm workers the other day. You did too, <laughs> right, Morgan? Acapellas. He was, he actually, he's a huge supporter of the acapella anxiety group. No. That I okay, so like I did, I did make that donation. I want to make that clear, but I also, I don't really want to get too much credit for it because it came out of the, the abundant fund that is ad revenue for this podcast. True. So like I took it and I was going to disclose this to you in our monthly statement that I that I took that this twenty dollars disappeared from our you know communal fund for the pod. <laughs> so you, you find out now that, that, but it was a good cause. Was if point, an impact point. evaluation was run on rationalish, it would definitely not be chosen <laughs> by GiveWell <laughs> as an effective right. donation source. But it's okay. I forgive you. But yeah, like what it what it talks about is basically like what the criticism talks about is like people aren't as willing to donate to these bigger organizations just purely off of like the psychological emotional feeling of being of like donating to you know something that's impacting them like directly in their community so i think there's like multiple different things to focus on there and the way that i've seen effective effective altruists like comment on it is saying like you know that's what effective altruism is is saying like you need to step out of that idea that you need that you're like donating to issues close to you and donate to where it's actually like higher impact so one of like the most I don't know I think like interesting examples that I saw was um there's like a burning building and there's two rooms and in one room there's like a burning child and in the other room there's a Picasso and Picasso baby oh not just some guy named Picasso (laughs) (laughs) thank you um and they and like asking like an average person like oh like who like what would you save like most people are like oh i'm gonna go save like the burning child but william william (laughs) oh really like he comments on this and he goes no like you should go save the picasso you should sell the picasso and then you should go save like a hundred children like who's to say that the value of that child's life is any more valuable than a child living in another part of the world who would gain so much more from the selling of that painting. See, Eddie's confused because he actually wouldn't save anyone. Yeah. He's, like, he's like, wait till the fire department shows up, negotiate a price like in ancient Rome. <laughs> I love, I love the money. idea. I love the idea that when somebody creates, uh, you know, an analogy and then, and then you're just like, well, I'll just hose the building down, save the Picasso and the burning child. <laughs> you know? Like someone yeah. that just doesn't understand the point of an analogy. Or just refuses <laughs> to give, a, go in, give into it, yeah. Yeah, um, that's interesting. It's, it makes you uncomfortable, right? Yeah. I think that's one of the major things that they're trying to get at. It's like you need to take yourself and remove yourself from the emotional appeal you would have for saving the child. And I, I mean, it's obviously, it's, a, and it's an example. And you know, I don't know of any 
situation where this has actually happened. <laughs> but I can understand both sides. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's necessarily a right or a wrong answer to that. But that's the point of effective altruism, right? Is that there yeah. is a right and a wrong answer to that. Of course, of course. And yeah. that's, that's appealing, right? It would definitely ah. give you an out when the parents of the child found out that you'd save the Picasso. <laughs> you would have to really know your effective altruism. To well, it's, it. an inter- it's kind of an interesting analogy because you're like, all right, you save the Picasso and you uh, like let the kid die. And then it's like, but you don't totally know the ramifications of letting the kid die. It's like, what if, what if the parents both kill themselves? And then what if like, I don't know, like there's, there's, there's ripple effects to every decision that you make. And so it's like, at what point does this uh, out? I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. I just like, I guess I like the optimism of effective altruists, but also like there's gotta be a very big slice of humble pie. I hope that is continually eaten. (laughs) I think they do a better job than most in terms of, because I don't think they would just say, oh, that's incredibly the wrong answer. They would say, oh, we'd have to consider, you know, you could look on later and maybe we'd be wrong, but we're taking the probabilistic approach and saying on probability, you know, probability, this kid's not going to grow up to be, you know, the next you know, polio vaccine uh, maker. What's that guy's name? Johannes? Cornelius? Johan <laughs> Cornelius. Um, <laughs> what? what is Jonas Salk? Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. I knew it was a J. <laughs> Jonas Salk. Um, he's probably just going to be a normal person, whereas the people we save, you know, the chances are higher that they'll go on. But I think they, even they would say that there's no way you could possibly know that. It's possible you make a mistake. You just have to take the best option. And that's why I think this works better, not in the case of making, you know, we shouldn't base our emergency response teams on effective altruism. But if you're donating to a cause, this is something that I think should be a principle that you at least take into consideration when you're doing so. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a question. Yeah. A lot of psychology studies on donations have, shown that basically a lot of people donate to feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, do they take into that, the consideration, the quantified good that comes to the person who's donating? Like if yeah. I donate to the deworming program and I'm like, eh, and the, or yeah. if I donate to the acapella group and I feel really good about myself and my acapella buddies, we can go out and hang out. Like, does that go into the calculation or is it just not considered on the same level? Right. So what's interesting is when I've heard this argument be brought up, what effective altruists say is that they've increased donate like donations overall more so because when like once people have heard about this they're mm. more likely to donate altogether than to donate without right. it but they're obviously appealing to like super rational people um in in that sense um and i also think it's interesting like on that kind of note to mention that i've heard them say that if everyone like if everyone did exactly what effective altruists recommend then they would need to like reformat their whole system mm-hmm. like it's almost made yeah. for people i mean it is made for people who have money who yeah. are like super rational who like have the ability They're to donate in the first place yeah yeah so mm-hmm. i do think it's imp- like i think it's important for them to clarify especially that like this is for people who are already donating or like ha- or have the means to to donate and are looking to, to do yeah. so um i also think like I, I thought of like some other criticisms and one that i didn't really see touched on it a whole bunch was just like the really strong focus on GDP. And Morgan, I know you're gonna like attack me because of your economics background, but I think I think like what they focus on a lot 
is, you know, it kind of says like, you could do more, like a lot of times when they summarize effective altruism, it's like you could do more by donating to a rich country or a poor country than donating within your own rich country. Like that's kind of like how I've seen it summarized a lot. But I think that might be true if the issue that you were donating to was poverty. But I don't think that GDP can, like I don't think they're looking at charities that do things like social activism or like, like uh, political equality or social equality and things like that as much and I don't think that you can just say oh if you donate to a rich a poor country that's going to have more of a difference than it would have in a rich country and so I think that's a direction that the research should move into in the future and I've kind of seen that with like the 80,000 hours portion because they're able to get more specific um but yeah that's that's something that I, I think needs to be focused on more yeah I, I agree with you I, I wouldn't yeah. say it's a GDP issue it sounds more like a just like a baseline cost benefit analysis and it's like the extra dollar, it's marginal returns issue, right? It's not about improving the GDP, which is mostly about like country economics versus like individual cost benefit analysis, right? Mm. So I think that their argument is a dollar literally just goes further in poor countries. So if you're donating $50, that is worth more purchasing power parity per, you know, per capita in Guatemala than it is in the United States. But I totally understand your point. And I think especially in countries that have a lot of influence abroad, there could definitely be an argument made that if you donate to a political campaign where the outcome is a better foreign policy that improves the institutions of a developing country in the long run, that could have been a much more effective use of that dollar, even in terms of what they're talking about, not even looking at kind of psychological factors that might be you know, less, um, at least less susceptible to purchasing power concerns. But yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, like, especially because, you know, even with, even with, I mean, health, health and G, like in GDP seem to be pretty well correlated, would you say? Yeah. And so it makes sense sometimes, sometimes I, I feel like there needs to be more research on it, which is kind of like, I feel like the overall outcome of like, if you get more and more into it, all that you come up with is like, oh man, there really just needs to be more research everywhere all the time. <laughs> this is one of my main critiques. How much do they fund research? Because it seems like, oh, they get this research and then they're like, oh, it's review. And it's like, okay, wouldn't the most effective use be to fund research areas that aren't well-funded? So maybe I might yeah, be biased, I was curious. Someone, I might be I was biased curious. as someone who receives research funds, but still. I, so, so I was curious I, about that too. Like, are they partnering with universities or like academics or how does that work? So I think this is a good transition into like the 80,000 hours. Um, so so 80,000 Hours is like a group that got started as a branch of like effective altruism who specifically targets people who are trying to make career decisions. So it would look at like if the, the person who created it basically was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I want to have like the most impact possible. Like, what should I be, what should I be doing? So they created this thing called 80,000 Hours, which is how much time you spend in your job. I think that's the, the, the reason for it. Um, and over how long? Your whole your, life? Your, yeah, you're actually life. just really big fans of the movie 27 Hours, and that's how many times the people in the movement have watched it. <laughs> <laughs> they just have no arms. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I mean, uh, like, Eddie, you know this, but I was trying to figure out what I should do as far as, like, grad school goes. And so that's the reason I, like, came across. That was a fun conversation. <laughs> I we, we, were at a, we were at a whack fam Christmas family barbecue. And me and Morgan talked to you for like two and a half hours about what to do with your life. And I just completely ignored all your advice and went directly to 80,000 hours. That's smart. You've never made I'm, a better decision. I'm very used to people ignoring all of my advice. So. No, no. You're in good company. 
it was really helpful and and it got me thinking about it a lot more and i i like was starting to read a like effective altruism after after reading the doing it better book um and came across eighty thousand hours which is like a pretty big sector of it which it's saying like okay how can we put people who maybe aren't in the position exactly to donate yet uh but either to be which is interesting either to be in a position of donating which is like one of the recommendations which is like highly criticized and they're starting to emphasize it less, which is actually like earning to give. So it's like putting yourself in a position to earn a lot of money so that you can donate a lot of that money. I think this is the most interesting thing yeah. that I've heard. I, and you can talk about more. I didn't know they were shifting away from this. So the yeah. idea is basically, I think what a lot of people do today, if they think, oh, I want to dedicate my life to doing better is they you know, go into nonprofits or they do something that pays poorly, but you can help give back to people. And what they say is, that's at least what they used to say. You can talk about it more. Mm. What they used to say, correct me if I'm wrong, is basically that's not the best use of your time and resources. Maybe you can have some impact, but the person who would be teaching that class English in Nicaragua would also be doing good. They would be doing the same thing as you. Whereas the, you know, the lawyer whose job you took as a lawyer would not be donating back to the community. So by becoming something that makes a lot of money and then donating back, that is all extra and money that wouldn't be donated to communities otherwise. That's the rough argument, right? Yeah. I, the, yeah. The thing that I was curious about that approach is that if they had any data yet on like how that actually worked out for somebody over a 10 year time frame. Like if you're like, what's a passion of yours, Demi? Podcasting, really. <laughs> so that's, okay. that's a biased example because it's so lucrative. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's a bad example. Um, because you would make just as much money podcasting as you would currency trading. Yeah. But let's just say for the sake of argument that you, that podcasting doesn't pay very much just for the sake of argument. <laughs> so, um, so you get a job at this American life and, uh, you're one of their, you know, staff people and you don't get paid very much, but you love your job and you just are really happy going to work every day. But then you're effective altruist, so you're like, oh, shoot, I better quit this job that I love and, you know, make enough money to live, but not much to donate. I'm going to go to Wall Street and I'm going to be a currency trader. And so you make, I don't know how much they make, $300,000 a year. I don't know. Podcasters. $550,000 a year, whatever they make. And you donate, you know, 90% of it, but you hate going to work every day. And so it's like, how sustainable is that on an individual level in terms of mental health? Like, like doing good out of, out of obligation rather than out of love. I want to add really quick before Demi responds. I also wonder, I think when I first read this argument, my concern was more that impressionable college students who went into currency trading probably wouldn't remain tethered to the effective altruist movement 10 years down the line when they've all made currency trader friends and want to go to currency trader parties. Yeah, that's and a good point. It's much more difficult to sustain the lifestyle of the people you're with. That's what I was always thinking. Yeah. Well, so. And they're snorting coke off the backs of other <laughs> currency traders. <laughs> Lots of different denominations no, no of currency. bills that they're using. <laughs> yes. You know those currency traders parties? <laughs> <laughs> um okay so first the first thing i'll touch on is like specifically talking about like say journalism that's actually one of the careers so if you go on to the eighty thousand dollar eighty thousand dollar <laughs> if you go to the eighty thousand hour uh, like website and you look look at their like guide basically what it is it says okay we've found like we have like some 
things that you should focus on, some overall arching things you should focus on with your career. And that's like, um, like building like specialist capital, transferable career things, um, information, and then like personal fit. So like personal fit to career, um, immediate impact that you're able to have, and then like also like personal priorities. So like those things could like, those are things that they say you should take into consideration. And we can go more into depth in those. And then when it comes to like career choices, so say that like you're in my situation where you're like not into a career yet, um, it will say like, here are some broad issues that we think then there should be like some more focus on. And actually, and then it goes, and here are some like jobs that we think there needs to be more of. And so one of these would be like, um, like AI policy and like looking into the impacts of future technologies and then also uh, like global peace. And a lot of these though, like you look at the specific jobs and some of it's like in policy, some of it's um, in philosophy. So we can like figure out like these bigger moral issues. Some of it's uh, in research, a lot of it's in research. A lot of it says like you should go and research these ideas, but like they also have a podcast um, and in like their most recent one, I think it was like 2019, uh, like November, 2019 is when it came out. They said like, look, these are the ones that we put on our website now. If everyone goes into these jobs, that's not going to be good. So like, we're going to keep updating these, like this is of now are the issues that we think that needs to be focused on, like focused on. Um, and what's really cool about 80,000 hours is because they understand how individual career choice can be, they do consulting. So that's like what I applied for is like, they'll do individual consulting with people. And like, you kind of, you answer like a set of questions and then they like talk you through a specific career choice. But they're like, do you want to be in a cult? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought one was really, like, they talked about one which was really interesting. And um, it was a, a guy who was deciding whether or not he was going to be like a consultant because he was like in financing, but he also had like a pretty decent chance becoming like a, a magician in a india magician. and they were like normally if you just read our website you would probably be like oh i should be a consultant because i could either like earn to give or i could like move around easily or i could like you know affect these big research areas but they were like the magician like you have the chance to have like big like social presence you know like you could be you could have like a lot of influence say that you affect you stuck with effective altruism and were able to like promote that yeah, you can cut people in half. Think of yeah. how much you can save people in hospital. It's like, it's like, and <laughs> you know, we all got our vices. Sorry, we just love magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I don't know that like, that's really interesting. I think that's the very like specific things that are targeted with 80,000 hours and how they get so individualized are like the issues that you would get into that you like find with the overall effective altruist altruism movement if you like try to subscribe to it as an individual um and they're very much like i think they emphasize it more in eighty thousand hours than i've seen with the effective altruism movement as a whole probably just because there's like it's so much more broad but they like really focus on like hey like you know we might be wrong <laughs> like these are just some ideas that we have and we really need more research so like even one of the recommendations are like hey if you're able to get into a phd in one of these top five universities then you should apply to to work for us um, but I think it's interesting. And it also says like, if you're of a specific background um, or can like can add like a lot of diversity to the team, which kind of comes into like that personal fit thing, then you should also be applying for these positions because we're lacking like that, that input, mm. um, which I think is really important. And I know like, I've talked to you about it. And this is like one of the, I think the most interesting things about 8,000 hours, and you kind of talked about it, which is like, 
how good at the job would you be versus someone else who does the same job? So like, if I wanted to become, I really want to help people and I wanted to become a doctor, I would probably be as good of a doctor, if not worse, than most other people who wanted to be a doctor. But I might be a better podcaster slash magician magician and musician (laughs) than like the average person. So I would actually might be able to have a higher impact in a different way. I understand what's going on. This has all been a coup to take over this podcast. (laughs) I think it's actually her trying to get social support for her magician career. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and she's and she's gonna make in her first act of magic will be making us disappear off this podcast. (laughs) Uh, People on the podcast can't see it, but I'm actually making a penny flow behind Eddie's head right now. (laughs) Pretty impressive. (laughs) It was you the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I want to ask, you did this consulting thing. They called you, they talked to you about it. Has it changed your future career path at all or got you to think about anything differently? Or do you think you were already kind of thinking about these things and so you're heading in the same direction as before? So first two really disappointing things. I was not chosen. Oh no. <laughs> which no. Make, which makes me think wait, they're wait, like. Wait, what? They're like turning down people I, that I, want yeah, to be part of this? Down. Well, there's a lot of people who apply. Like they, and I think they do like a really good job of like taking their time with people. Cause they've, they said like 2000, since 2011, they've consulted over a thousand people, which is like not that many, you know? So I'm like, okay, this is like pretty selective. Um, so yeah, so like they, I got turned down. Um, but they like set me up with a person who is in London, which is like where I'll be going to grad school, um, with a person who does like effective altruism there, just like get me to like talk to someone and like get some advice and like, um, join the cult. And so I, I don't get, I don't get why they benefit turning people down. I just don't have the resources to do as good with everyone as you guys. Yeah. They're trying to do good best. You know what you should have done is presented yourself as the perfect opportunistic case. Been like, yeah, if I don't get this, I'm going to go do really ineffective stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Borderline case. (laughs) But if I get in, I'm going to dedicate my life to greater good. So. (laughs) Honestly, that probably would have been a better idea. Um, But yeah, so I I did have a chance to talk to someone. Uh, and unfortunately, just like the timing of how it went, I was trying to choose between like two grad schools. Like that's pretty much what it came down to. And I had already chosen by the time I talked to them. And so the whole time it was like me kind of just like talking out, talking this guy, like trying to tell this guy he's wrong. Like, look, I made the right decision. <laughs> Don't make me do this. <laughs> so that was like kind of what, and, and I think, um, I think I convinced him <laughs> nice. by the end of the call. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't a very like effective phone call. I'm sure I wasted this person's time. Um, but it was really interesting and like cool to talk to someone who was a part of this. And basically this guy's story was that he was like uh, an engineer and he just kind of like found this movement and decided like, oh, I kind of like, I want to do something greater with my life. So he's still, he was doing the engineering stuff for a while and then was like earning to give. And then they actually like hired him on full time to be a part of like the effective altruism and talk to people like me and like try to guide career choices. So um, it is like an interestingly, like the way that it's growing, um, just looking at this person's story in particular and like knowing that there is like a, a group at the grad school that I'm going to that like I can join if I wanted to. And I was able to talk to another person like within the community, which kind of shows you like, whoa, this community is like really like rapidly expanding. And everyone seems like really nice and giving because I'm just like some random person and they were all willing to talk to me. So that's pretty cool. 
That's how they That's wrote great. you in. <laughs> I <know. laughs> hey, I think I think they probably looked at it and they're like, "Will we be more effective as a Colts?" And people were like, "Yeah, people love the community. Yeah, they love the punch." Boom, and then they just said what part of our for? aim will be Colts. They're looking for a charismatic leader, though. <laughs> Dang, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Hey, you were the president of your college. You're pretty like charismatic. Sounds like the magician should be the guy, yeah. right? He should yeah. be. He's got the skills. We got to call. You him. know, <laughs> that's actually fortuitous that you brought this up because I was thinking about this. Um, and there must be some sort of evolutionary biology reason for this, but how many female magicians do you see like zero that's because people the male magicians keep cutting them in half <laughs> and making them disappear that's true they cut their apprentices in half exactly so that they won't become full-on magicians that's interesting mm-hmm. hmm. maybe it's time for a career change <laughs> yeah i know so how big is the like london school of economics contingent of effective altruists I have no idea. Um, I've, I only talked to one person who was a part of it. Um, and we didn't even talk about, we didn't talk about effective altruism. I just talked to him because he happened to be a part of like the club or whatever it's called there. And also uh, in my like major in like in what I'm studying. And so I just had a chance to talk to him and ask him more pointed questions about like, okay, I'm now I'm in the same spot as you because I didn't listen to the other person's advice. <laughs> what should I, what should I like be doing? And, and that was really helpful. And I think what you'll find with the people who I've talked to is like, everyone's very, like, they try to be like very rational. Like that's like kind of the tone behind everyone that's a part of it. Um, and really helpful, but also, and they mentioned this a lot on like the uh, 8,000 or 80,000 hours gosh, they need like an easier name. The 80,000 hours site is like, you know, yeah, take everything we say with a grain of salt. And of course, like, enjoy yourself, test new things out. A lot of what career is, is like reflecting and like making the best of your situation and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was really cool. Um, Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we want to, we, we've probably gone a little over, so I don't know if we want to talk about the specific issues. I think that their focus on kind of existential risk is really interesting. I think it, it's one of the other things, animal rights, some of these areas that would not get as much play in other philosophies, but also in other organizations that I think they do a good job at, especially existential risks. Um, is, is, there, is, much, but. is there like discretionary funding in terms of, Okay, great. Like, you know, we have five years of data that uh, this specific water pump works really well in these villages in Kenya. However, there's also a pandemic going on. Like, are they, are they also funneling money into like Oxford and the researchers who are in the labs right now trying to come up with a vaccine? I have no idea. That's a really good question. I didn't see anything that was like that up to date, but William... William and Peter, I'm pretty sure, are professors of philosophy at Oxford. So Whoa! Hopefully they have the end. You like how they, they threw in philosophy? They're like, yeah, really important existential risks, animal rights, <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Super crucial. Like, oh my god. Because I was assuming this William guy was just like a multimillionaire who... Yeah, it was like a banker or something. He's only 33. He's a philosopher. He's only 33. He's a pretty devout, yeah. effective altruist from what I've heard. He, he only he lives off like 40,000 pounds and donates the rest. But Yeah, he only has three orgies a year. <laughs> That's pretty good. 
That's not bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say that you want to conclude with? Yeah. Eddie, do you have any other questions? Alright, let's go David. Wait, do you say he lives off forty thousand pounds a year? Something like that, yeah. Well, I read That's that. kind of a lot in the UK though. Uh, but he also has to fly around to these different places and I mean for someone who's a professor at at Oxford who has all these book deals, it's not I mean he's giving up a substantial portion of his, his income. Yeah. I would just, I would like to see his tax return is all I'm saying. <laughs> I heard he wasn't even born in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I do have like a couple things that I feel like would be like, if you're like listening as the audience to like look into. Yeah, like give some it to consideration. Yeah. Um, give us some goodies at the so end here. I feel like I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but I think it's really clear that like the audience that they're seeming to target is someone who, like the effect of altruism as a whole, is someone who's like in their working like they're already like working and they have the ability to donate which i feel like is important to clarify because it's definitely not something that is like super open to everyone um and takes that into consideration but hopefully it'll be changing since they are so open to that um i also think it's important to like consider like the overall question of like what doing good is um just in the sense of like there's this kind of like neoliberal perspective on giving which like say what you will you know it might be better to have like an overall systemic change um than to like keep supplying the current system that we that the current charities that we're going with like instead of like going in and supplying money to these charities maybe what we should be doing is focusing on like this overall political movement um to like liberate people and provide more freedoms these are just like perspectives i'm not yeah, saying which one, yeah um and then i also think we talked about it, but like pulling away from smaller charities and like willingness to give and the psychological impact of giving to people that you know and like how the individual person who maybe isn't in the category of like having rich, being rich and from like a rich country and have the ability to donate, how like they give their donations and what the, like how they like, how they can make a difference if they wanted to. Um, Why does it? Yeah. Why doesn't the effective altruist movement just own that they're an elitist movement and they're like, but not not even as a negative. And they're just like, no, no, we're trying to recruit people to who like have a really high aptitude who can make a lot of money or just people who are in, in positions of influence. And we're going to reorient the way they use their time and money. And we're not for everyone. We're not trying to recruit your average person, you know? Like, why don't they just own that? Or do they? I think they have, like, I think they definitely have, like, especially when it comes to their old principles, like, they do. Like, I've seen them say, like, yeah, like, you are, well, they also are, like, if you're in the U.S., you're part of, like, the richest 1%. So, like, or, like, in the U.K., like, you're, we are talking to you if you're in these countries. Um, But I don't think they consider, this is where I feel like there's too much of, like, a GDP focus, where it's like, oh, yeah, you're talking about rich as a whole country, but you're not looking at the individual people within a country. So I do think they need to be more specific on who they're targeting. Um, But I also think that they're trying to expand more now that they've gotten like enough backing, they're like, okay, how can we actually appeal to more people? And, you know, so the, it's growing. Um, I think it's like very much in its early stages and they haven't mm-hmm. gotten like a ton of, I don't think there's like a ton of diversity of thought in the initial group, but it's like growing and they're open to it. So there's that. And then, yeah, I, th- I think that's like pretty much it. And the last thing I'll say is that I do think it's really interesting when it comes to the, the giving portion. And I think it's like probably the greatest takeaway is that if you're going to be in a position which like is a charity, if you have a nonprofit, if you're like managing a nonprofit, like a focus on research and like trying to do the most good with say the donations that you're getting or like the movement that you're doing, like that should be like a huge focus. Like I think it would be really great if effective altruism like 
help support local nonprofits. Like if that was like one of the things like growing their ability to research and like do good with like little resources. Um, like, especially in the case of like the pandemic or like things that come up all of a sudden out of nowhere, like there's aid that needs to go to those places, but knowing exactly how to be most effective with that just isn't super, isn't super well thought out at this point. So I think that's like my last final notes. All right. Yeah, I enjoy it. Eddie, are you an effective altruist now? Were you convinced? Are you going to join Jim, Demi and dress up in robes and go to magic shows? Yeah, but I don't think they would have me. I'm not going to be rich. <laughs> I mean, other than the podcast money. I mean, effective altruism as a whole is not something you can, you can get denied from. That's only the 80,000 hours portion. You can oh, be an effective okay. altruist even without being extremely successful, which you are going to be anyway, so... I wouldn't work. Yeah, I don't know. There's, it's like, it's a really interesting premise. Um, like what, like what would they, would they, what if, like what if a church tried to partner with them? They're like, all right, what, you know, are they open to working with mosques and churches and religious organizations? Or, I feel like they would calculate that. I yeah. feel like yeah, they'd be like, all right, what is the, what is the cost benefit analysis working with the church? I agree. Um, is, is this like a really religious country? Like, are we going to be like turning off other churches from wanting to work with us? Or like a lot of people not coming to this church are like going to be using these different medications because we're partnering with like a Christian church when like half the people are Muslim or something along those lines. I feel like yeah. it would be super like mm. thought out. Yeah. So Eddie, if you want to join, you just have to buy six boxes of knives from us, and then you sell them on. You yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do I have to buy some supplements too? Exactly. But hey, but you're going to make it all back. It's just right. an investment. It's an upfront investment cost. <laughs> right. That's also the interesting premise of Effective Altruist. It kind of seems like it's, it's pretty um, sold on capitalism. Yeah. That like, capitalism is the way to i don't and i guess i guess how else could it function and and maybe that's a really good starting point i think they but, would be willing as demi said to fund kind of small scale studies to see if alternative systems could be better in the long run but yeah i think as of now they're definitely working within the system which is a very strong critique critique that demi brought up yeah i just think effective altruist is like so like I would never, who would say that? Oh, I'm effective altruist. Like, yeah. that's a, that's, I mean, they talk about it. Like, no one's super effective all the time, but. Think I, how much more effective they would be if they had a better name. Maybe that's the most effective thing you can do is rebrand this. Uh, well, seriously. Brand of marketing. The demi Wack experience. Everybody. <laughs> I like it. DW. <laughs> no, it's so bad. It's so bad. Uh, listeners, <laughs> listeners can reach out to us if they have a name. We'll run it up the chain. Demi will reach up to the top of the EA movement and see if we can uh, see if we can get a new name in there. How's yeah. that? Also, if you're a charismatic leader. <laughs> oh, also, I wanted to, to throw out there, Demi is also starting her own podcast soon. Oh, yeah. Give thanks. her a little shout out for listeners of Rationalist if they're interested. What? What are you starting a podcast on? Um, now that now that I made all those podcast comments, I'm realizing that it probably was more self-serving. Is it a review? Me. Is it a review podcast of Rationalist where you're just gonna review every episode that yeah, you just comment it's on? It's Rational Learn, and she just critiques <laughs> it the whole time. I'm doing Rational oh, better. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but no, it's a it's gonna be called. I think it's good. We just kind of came up with the name recently, but it's probably gonna be called Policy Wise. Um, and it's myself, 
and uh, my friend. And we are basically talking to an adult or like a current political leader in a certain field and like an upcoming- You say an adult? An adult. An adult. I'm a, As opposed to a child. Well, well, this is important. Hey, this if is there's important. a child leader anywhere, he's not allowed. He's not, he's not coming here anytime. Okay, so you know that, did you see the videos of that like nine-year-old kid president who like met Obama? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he wouldn't be allowed Not on the podcast. Well, actually, come back in ten years. So, so this is the <laughs> entire podcast is supposed to promote like an intergenerational approach to policy making. So what you're supposed to have is like what we're you're supposed to have. What we're gonna have is like a rising like policy like leader or like student or like someone someone of like a younger generation speaking with someone who's already like an expert in that field. And we're gonna be talking about like different political issues. Um, and it's supposed to one create more of an interest, hopefully, among youth to like get involved in this stuff, but also for policy people to start taking seriously the considerations of youth while making these policies. Um, yeah. Have you seen that one meme that's like, or it was like somebody's comment, they're like, oh, do, should we consider electing uh, more millennials to, to government? And somebody else commented, considering my uh, linear perspective on time, I'm fascinated to hear what the alternative is. <laughs> 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 no, I haven't seen that. That's funny. That's yeah. great. That sounds really cool, Demi. Who's uh? When's a, when's this thing launching? Where can people find it? Um. So, great question. We will be uh launching in two weeks. In our like, we just record the intro this next week. So, um, we'll have to do. Maybe we'll do like a crossover. Yeah, we'll yeah. have to have a crossover episode. Because when you get your when you finish your PhD. Who knows? Okay. Well, <laughs> well Eddie finished his PhD, so he can be the expert true, in this field. True. And then um <laughs> and then I'll learn a lot about like some what are you doing? Magician, magician <laughs> stuff. Magician he's stuff. just decided he's switching over. Wants to make a difference. <laughs> um yeah, this was great. Well we'll give Demi's podcast a shout out later on cool, when once it's you. released. But uh yeah, this is terrific. And rational listeners, feel free to reach out if you have any questions about the effective altruism movement or Eddie's dating life. Till next time, guys. Thank you.